0: Welcome to the we need to talk about whiteness podcast. I'm your host Miriam Francois and to all our listeners thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well very simply because as someone racialized as white myself I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Filipino-American writer and musician, Christine Wag dixon Christine is the content director of Samahan, an online multimedia platform dedicated to connecting Filipinos across the globe through the power of technology and social media. Her work has been featured in various publications and websites, including Glamour, Mike, Allure, and many more. Christine also writes the Barkada Tayo column in the Filipino Star News, and is the author of a poetry collection titled From These Islands I Rise. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. I'm hoping that we will get the chance to uh, discuss a tragedy that has happened very recently in America. I'm referring here to the deadly mass shooting on March the 16th, targeting Asian American women working at a massage parlors in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta in America. The shooting is only one of the latest instances of violence directed at Southeast and East Asian communities, which has also included horrifying attacks on elderly people as part of a space of racism which has led to an elderly Thai person dying after being shoved to the ground, a Filipino-American being slashed in the face with a box cutter, and a Chinese woman being slapped and then set on fire. These are just a few examples of recent violent attacks on Asian-Americans, which are part of a surge in abuse since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic a year ago. Last year, the United Nations issued a report detailing a quote unquote alarming level of racially motivated violence and other hate incidents against Asian-Americans. And these hate crimes are not restricted to the US. Here in the UK, there have also been increasing reports of attacks against people of Southeast and East Asian heritage. So what's going on? Christine, first off, how are you? I imagine it's been a tough few weeks for the Asian-American community. Can you give us a sense of how these incidents have impacted you and those around you? Oh, um, I think we're all
1: pushed to our limits right now. Um, You know, every time there's a new attack, I see the same patterns. I see, you know, I'm unable to sleep. My friends, my relatives were all up grieving and scared and also trying to comfort each other through all of this. And I think that, you know, between the pandemic And the rise in racism, we're all kind of just maxed out on anxiety levels right now. And we're really at the limit,
0: but trying to power through. Can only imagine. I mean, you would have seen the headlines as much as anyone else. A a lot of the references to the shooter as as having had a bad day. Um, This was not referred to as terrorism Um, this was somebody who was, in other words, perceived as a sort of rogue, a rogue shooter. How do you interpret what happened?
1: I think we all know that that's not true. Um, I've seen, you know, so many people saying, well, of course he had a bad day. We've all been having bad days. We've been having a bad year. Um, and most people having a bad day don't go out and commit that sort of violence. And I also... What really struck me was how there was no accountability there. The, you know the shooter it was all about the blame being put elsewhere. you know he was having a bad day there was speculation that he might have a sex addiction and I think it's very characteristic of how we often see women blamed for the problems of men and of course you know this goes all the way back to Eve being blamed, right the original sin, and I, I've been mm. reflecting a lot on how, as a Filipino, as a Southeast Asian woman, um, I'm often blamed for the attraction men have to me. You know, they they paint me as something irresistible, and I've had people say things like, "Oh, I'm so sorry for hitting on you. You're just so beautiful. I couldn't resist." You know, there is always this idea that it's not their fault for not being able to control themselves it's your fault for being there and presenting the temptation which is how this shooter's actions were presented you know the the authorities even said that he viewed the woman he shot as a temptation that needed
0: to be eliminated. Wow I mean to what extent do you think that sort of latent stereotyping of Um, East Asian and Southeast Asian women has played into um, the justifications for violence and and what what are those what are those stereotypes like we 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 know there's a hypersexualization, but you know how do you you, you've described obviously being hit on and people trying to justify that um, as somehow being your fault but what do you think are some of the prevalent stereotypes and how do they affect how women from these communities are treated?
1: Well, there is this long-standing stereotype that is upheld by the media and has been for generations that Asian women are foreign, they're exotic, they're something tempting and seductive, and we're often portrayed as dragon ladies. Um, We are Portrayed as being submissive and eager to please, and also because you know Asian women are hypersexualized, but Asian men are often emasculated, and so there's also this idea that we that we are on the prowl for Western men because they're real men, supposedly. That you know that's how the stereotype goes. So there's mm. so much feeding into it that just has the ultimate result of Asian women being very often seen as objects, as sex dolls, rather
0: than as human beings.
1: And or do you a trophy think,
0: to be won. It's <laughs> yeah. And do you think that that um, sexualization contributes to facilitating violence? Absolutely.
1: Um, I, on more than one occasion, I have had to physically defend myself um, from someone who is making racially and sexually charged comments. And I've feared for my safety. I've had to, you know, kick or hit and get myself out of that situation. And even when the comments and the so-called jokes have not had an immediate threat of violence, I've always felt that it could easily escalate to that point, especially because I've seen how angry men like this can get when they try to hit on you. And it's not just that they assume that you're going to be attracted to them because they're a Western man and supposedly that's what we're into. There's also the assumption that it's owed to them, that they somehow, um, are, are owed our deference to them. And it's happened before where men have made sexually suggestive remarks. This one man who, kept saying, oh, you know, why don't you give me a happy ending massage? I'm sure you work in some sort of massage parlor or something where you do that sort of thing, and I'll give you more money. And of course, I said, you know, that's not what I do. Um, That's not something that I am going to do that I'm willing to do. And he ends it with, well, you know what, Asian women are ugly anyway. So there's always that very quick 180 where, you know, they come in and they make these assumptions about you based on your ethnicity and your gender and that when you shut it down mm. they turn ugly very fast. So it's no surprise seeing how you know these things can escalate that they do escalate and it's very clear that these stereotypes are not just hurtful but they are harmful and they have larger repercussions other than you know someone saying something nasty or mean. And what do you
0: regard as being at the root of these particular stereotypes? Where do they come from? I mean, they've been constructed, um, you know, there's whiteness is a particular perception of these identities. Where do you feel that that comes from? Well, a lot of it is white supremacy, of course, this idea
1: that America and the West are the dominant forces. So much of it is rooted in colonization and imperialism. Um, My homeland, the Philippines, was colonized first by the Spanish and then by the Americans. So for 500 years, um, white men have viewed us as being at their back end call. I've had men, American men say things like, it's really too bad that we no longer own you and things like that. And so much of it is rooted in this concept of Western superiority, which is very closely linked to white supremacy. Um, And you see it in the history of America. You see that America has this long history of othering, not just Asians, but other communities of color. Um, You have things like yellow peril, which... Um, scared Americans into thinking that the East was some sort of threat to Western civilization. Um, And you have things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, you have anti-miscegenation laws, all of these things that for generations have said, well, we need to keep whiteness separate and pure that has just othered us for, you know, throughout the history of this country. So that also plays into
0: it. And do you feel that um, part part of the issue is that maybe many Americans, many Westerners may not, um, specifically white Americans and white Westerners don't know that history or do they, do you feel that it's a question of not knowing the full picture, you know? Uh, in it, And I say that in light of sort of calls to decolonize history, so that we have a fuller picture of what actually happened and not um, a sort of truncated narrative? Um, I think part
1: of it is, of course, that we have this very white-sided view of history in the States. There are so many things missing from our curriculum, but also part of it is because of the context in which we view Asia. Um, People of my generation often view Asia through the lens of the Korean War and of the Vietnam War. And so they see, they have this vision of, you know, Asia as being weak and inferior and bowing down to American might. Um, And they see themselves as conquerors. And I think that plays into part of it. They think um, that Asian women are small and weak, and that makes them feel strong. But yeah, you know, again, there's just there's so much, right It's so nuanced, and our mm. history
0: is so tangled and so bloody. And mm. I mean, um, the writer uh, tween Nguyen, I hope I haven't mispronounced his name, said that the incident last Tuesday's shooting is the latest and horrific demonstration of what historically rooted, And systematically sustained racism, xenophobia, anti-Asian rhetoric, hypersexualization of Asian women and misogyny look like when they have been diligently interwoven over generations and across borders to form one titanic, timeless and gruesome patchwork quilt. Does that resonate with you?
1: I hadn't heard that. Um,
0: Wow. Uh, Yeah, I I was particularly struck by that sentence in the article, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think what people aren't realizing is that this hate crime is not an isolated incident. It's certainly one of the most shocking and publicized that we've seen recently, but it's not isolated. And anti-Asian sentiment has always existed, and it's come in and out, it's gone in waves we're in the middle of a particularly heightened um, case right now, but it's always been there. It's always been in the background, and uh, most of us have dealt with this sort of thing on a regular basis, certainly not typically at that dangerous level, but we've lived it. We've experienced it, and it's it's nothing new, and people have... I've heard a lot of commentary on, you know, where did this come from? And, wow, finally, we're, we're seeing this, like, wave and people are finally speaking out. But the thing is, is that we've been speaking out. We're often silenced when we speak out. And that leads us to think that we can't speak out because it's so very often swept under the rug. And I think especially as Asian Americans many of us um, are immigrants or our parents or grandparents are immigrants and we've kind of been raised not to rock the boat not to cause trouble um so very often we're not likely to speak out when we experience certain racial microaggressions Uh, we don't feel comfortable speaking out and part of that is because we don't want to cause trouble Part of it is because some of us have tried and been told that we're just playing the race card.
0: Has that conversation been any more audible in the light of Black Lives Matter opening up a conversation around, um, you know, police brutality and uh, anti-Black racism in America? Or has it not extended to other groups yet? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I've seen,
1: I know a lot of people within the Asian community have been standing with Black Lives Matter and the Black community, but you also see a lot of anti-Blackness within the Asian community. Mm. Um, so it, it gets very complicated. I think that some of us have become a little bit more outspoken on race as we stand in solidarity with other communities of color, I think that's kind of spurred us to find our commonality and to, you know, join and rise together in
0: this fight against white supremacy. Mm. And, so. and how, how has COVID impacted um, this anti-Asian hate? Because, you know, obviously there's been a lot of Initially, there was a lot of talk of, of China having been um, the, uh, the, the cause of this global pandemic. And, um, I, you know, it's been cited certainly in some of the incidents um, and the attacks against people of East Asian and Southeast Asian heritage. Um, how do you think that, that the pandemic has affected this issue?
1: Well, even before, even before... Um, this became a big news story because it's only been in recent months that there's been a wider discourse on this. Even as early as February, March last year, I was already growing fearful because there had not been much coverage of it yet at that point. But I had been hearing from a lot of friends and relatives that they'd been going out and someone would yell something racist at them. Um, There were already some incidents Um, people being spat on, um, people being attacked and it wasn't as publicized as the more recent incidents, but yeah, you know, you, you trace it back to the start of this pandemic and of course politicians and other pundits calling it things like Kung flu and China virus didn't help. And that's why for the past year, we've been saying, you know, please use the proper terms, please call it COVID-19, calling it anything racialized is putting us in danger. And we've been saying this for a long time and, you know, there's still no change. It's still happening. People are still doing it and justifying it saying, well, if it came from China, that's what we can call it. But of course, we know it's more complicated than that and we can see that it's directly harming
0: our community. T- today, would you say that people from these communities are living in fear? Is there, you know, are you do you warn your grandparents before they go out, you know, be careful? Is there a is there a sort of Real everyday palpable concern for your safety and and, and the welfare of those around you?
1: Um, Yes, absolutely. Um, I will not go for a walk around my neighborhood by myself. Um, If I do go out with my husband, I won't bring the dog with me because I'm afraid if something does happen, I don't want anything to happen to my dog. I don't go out without pepper spray. Um, People have told me that they're thinking of getting guns, you know, people who are very pro-gun control. are thinking of getting guns just in case. I have sent several of my friends and relatives pepper spray, just so they have it just in case. I have pepper spray that I carry in my bag. If I do have to leave the house, I barely left the house in the past year. And I think part of it, of course, is because of the pandemic. And part of it is just a fear of being targeted. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, we're all... We're all very scared. There's just this very, very heightened fear where people are looking into taking self-defense classes. They're begging their elders not to go out. Um, My cousin, I, I, I sent her some pepper spray, and she said, thank you, I have pepper spray, but a backup is always good. She's got a stun gun. She has a bat in the trunk of her car just in case. And it's terrifying because we're all taking these precautions that even those of us living in safe communities, and it's very scary, too, because the vaccine rollout, you know, is going well. If we're not vaccinated, we're probably going to be able to get vaccinated within a couple of months. And we're all looking at the end of this pandemic, but we also don't know if we're going to be safe once we can go back to our normal lives again
0: and and who are you fearful of everybody (laughs) um
1: everybody at this point um Mm. there's been a lot of discourse on how oh well you can't blame white supremacy because not all of the attackers have been white i think that is a distraction um Because it's true that not all of the attackers have been white, but I also think that's beside the point because historically, communities of color have been pitted against each other. This has been a very deliberate thing. Um, The model minority myth has painted Asians as being successful and as intelligent and hardworking. And that was used to deliberately portray us as a so-called good minority, which has had the effect of separating us from other minority communities and setting us apart. So you do see some Asians absorbing that, you know, believing that this is true. Um, And then you see that it's caused resentment in certain other communities. So I think to say that It's not about white supremacy if you have one or two attackers who aren't white. I think that's very inaccurate and unfair. All of this obviously goes back to white supremacy because white supremacy um, has done its best to keep communities of color separated so that we don't rise up
0: to dismantle supremacy and racism. And you um, yourself, your mother was a Filipino immigrant. Your father was a a white American. What was your experience of whiteness growing up? Um, It was interesting
1: because I saw that my father was clearly treated differently from my mother's brothers. I grew up in Metro Detroit where we were very close to the border and you know a lot of times we go into Windsor on the weekends for some dim sum and I remember at a very young age noticing that when we did that my father would be able to go right through the border and if one of my uncles was driving they would you know it would take longer they would ask questions they'd have us pop the trunk and I think this is one of my earliest realizations that people with lighter skin were going to be treated differently. And I think, you know, my parents never really thought to talk to me about racism. I think that my father, as a white man, probably didn't anticipate a child of his being subjected to racism. I think my mother, as a Filipino immigrant, um, thought that my being born here and having a white father and lighter skin would somehow um, provide me some sort of protection but it didn't. I grew up in a very white area. The kids in the neighborhood wouldn't play with me. Um, kids at school would tease me. They'd make fun of my eyes. They'd make fun of my name. And I, I always stood out. I, I, I very much stood out. And I think my mother hoped that, like, some of my father's whiteness would somehow protect me. But it hasn't. And even now, as a, as a mixed Asian woman, um, I've had people say, well, surely you're not as much of a target, right? If you're if you're a half, and you know that doesn't make a difference. I, I think a lot of racists they all look at us the same way. Um, no one's asking me for the results of my 23andMe test before they commit a you know a hate crime or a racial microaggression. They're not saying, oh, is any as is any of your DNA European by chance? Um, so. It's It's been strange because I have this proximity to whiteness mm. and there have been some ways I've benefited from that. Like if I only use my first and last name, um, people will presume that I'm white on paper and I suspect that may have opened doors for me. Um, and I think growing up with a, you know, with half of my family being white, I've learned to navigate whiteness a little better. I've learned to kind of code switch. I've learned how to interact in those spaces a little bit better I've learned how to I guess recognize prejudice a little more clearly because I've seen it in its natural habitat I've seen the prejudice that's kind of in the
0: background but not necessarily overt. And and how does code switching make you feel when you have to change aspects of who you are in order to be presumably what accepted within white environments um you know it's
1: funny I I I grew up bilingual and I joke that I don't actually know what my natural accent is because if I'm with Filipino friends and family I'm going to sound you know have a little bit more of a Filipino accent um and I don't know I've it's not even just the code switching, it's how I present myself and my, my background. There have been times when I've sensed that someone is not going to be okay with my background. And it's, it's funny, too, how people will see what they want to see. Um... I, I'm very clearly not white. I'm very visibly not white. But I think there have been people who have um, chosen to believe that I'm some sort of more acceptable minority, at least in their mind. Because for some reason, some people have these ideas of what kind of minority it's okay to be, which <laughs> makes no sense to me, of course. Mm. But I remember, um, you know, shortly before the pandemic, um, I was sitting in a bar and these women were trying to ask me where I'm from. And I said, I'm American. And they said, what does your passport say? And I said, it says the United States of America. And she gets so angry with me and she goes, there's clearly some Spanish or something in there. Um,
0: and so mm. I've learned
1: to kind of just um, in those spaces to let them let them make those assumptions because sometimes they keep me safe. I don't know. I think mm. sometimes they're okay with the Spanish, but they find out you're Asian and they just get angry and, and suddenly they want nothing to do with you. Um, and I had a, I had a friend growing up who I was friends with her for years and her father had only seen me at a distance. It was a predominantly white school. So maybe he saw me from a distance, maybe thought I was adopted, maybe mixed never occurred to him that, you know, I'm, I'm an Asian And I remember one day I was at her house and we played, I helped take care of her, you know, younger siblings, I played the piano, I helped prepare dinner, my mother came to pick me up, they spoke, and the next day at school she said, I can't hang out with you anymore.
0: And, 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 and this is what, how long ago we're talking, this is um, not, not many, not that long ago, right? N- 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 I, I was a teenager,
1: I was a teenager, so this would be like, you know, mid-late 2000s. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I said, what, what do you mean you can't hang out with me? And she said, my death is your bad influence. Now, I wow. was on the honor roll, I was a classical pianist, I had never gotten even a detention. Um, and I said, okay, that's... That's obviously not true. I'm obviously not a bad influence. I was the good kid. Everyone knew it. And she's like, okay, it's pr- fine. It's because you're Asian. Um, and it was funny because I, you know, he had he had seen me before, probably not up close, probably never really thought about it. And you know, he saw me as racially ambiguous, and I guess that um made him think that I was okay to hang out with his daughter. But then he saw me up close. And he saw my mother and he heard my mother's accent. And suddenly I was too Asian to hang out with his daughter.
0: This is, um, I I guess, a um, a very real life example of the boundaries of whiteness being policed, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, And I'm just wondering when that incident happened, what did you feel that you were being... Because it's like a punishment, right? You were being mm-hmm. punished in a way. Yeah. Um, did you have a sense of what you were being punished for? Um, you know, he had
1: met my father before. So I think that was what really struck me as the most infuriating thing about this. He met my father, knew my father was white, was fine with that. And so I kind of like watched this line of racial ambiguity with him for a while and then he realized that my mother was Asian and I was angry. I was, I was hurt. I was also angry that my friend, it wasn't her responsibility to make excuses for her father, you know, to apologize for him. But I was angry that there was no acknowledgement of it being wrong. It was just kind of, mm. you know, just like a little shrug and it's, a, oh, well, it's one of those things, you know, we can still hang out at school. And, you know, he doesn't have to know about it. And I felt, you know, like, you know, like a secret, like a dirty secret. Like, okay, well, Mm. I can hang out with the Asian girl at school, but don't tell my parents. And it also felt so, you know, again, this was the mid to late 2000s. Mm. This was, you know, supposedly a time of enlightenment and racial progress. And here's one of my best friends telling me I can't hang out with her because of the color of my skin.
0: And and it's interesting as well to hear that, you know, like you say, we're talking about not long ago at all. And uh, today when we talk about racism, a lot of white people will say, well, you know, I, I, I'm i not a racist. I'm an anti-racist. I object to racism. But then when we look at the minutia of our lives as people racialized as white, there are so many instances where we sustain whiteness by simply doing nothing and mm-hmm. this is, this is i guess is a really good example of a situation in which to be anti-racist requires action it's not good enough to you know di- disagree in your mind or disagree in your heart with with someone's position you know this required action And um, did 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 that person ever take any action to you know support you i suppose and to stand for stand stand against racism in in the context of a friendship a close relationship no i never saw her after graduation yeah
1: (laughs) um we're we're not in touch anymore and you know we've been friends since grade school so it was yeah Yeah, but i mean you see these things play out i mean i got it from my own family from my father's family um And they'd play it off as jokes. I knew they weren't jokes. My mother, you know, when I got older, my mother confided in me that, um, you know, some of my father's siblings um, did not approve. His children from his first marriage did not approve. And so as I got older, we had less and less interaction with that side of the family.
0: Um, Did they ever? Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, did they ever say what they didn't approve of because it seems to me so much of whiteness is about policing these boundaries which are about actually racial purity you know this is some yeah. serious white supremacy without ever verbalizing that because it would be very shocking to verbalize right to actually say you know we object to this because we want to maintain the white bloodline but nobody ever says that right did what what did they verbalize if anything um nothing it was mostly just jokes about me being
1: asian and my mother just could tell that they didn't like that her skin was brown um i remember um my brother passed away from cancer a few years ago and before that i would often take him to doctor's appointments thank you yeah. um you know i would often take him to doctor's appointments and one day he had a procedure done and i drove him there um And my sister was going to pick him up and this was a half sister you know I hadn't seen him in years my brother was much older than me so he was um you know almost more like an uncle to me but my brother and I were close Mm. and this sister of ours um she said oh so how'd you get here Christine drove me and she goes you let her drive your car you know she's Asian What does that even mean? And um, so I said, you know, it was fine. It's a smooth ride. I enjoyed it. And she said, well, good thing you didn't get an accident. That's the white half of you.
0: So you've experienced very (laughs) overt racism within a family context. Yes. And
1: um, I don't have contact with most of them now, specifically because of things like this. Um, Even when it was nothing overt, I never felt like a member of the family, some of them have flat out told me that I'm not a member of their family. Um, and it was very strange to me because part of it, I, you know, you can maybe attribute to my father being divorced from their mother and remarrying. Um, but there's no excuse to take that out on the child.
0: Yeah, no, and, and I think... Especially when they were much yeah. older.
1: You know, they were, they, they were adults by the time I was born. So certainly old enough to know better.
0: And certainly, I guess, aware that they were navigating I suppose uh, the the conscious aspect is important in this situation because so much of um the justifications we hear for racism involve people saying you know well I didn't realize or I you know I I didn't know or um you know but in this particular instance we have I think probably uh, um you know your experience I'm sure is not singular um um evidence that you know in in the in our very current history, very recent history, um, white people in America are still navigating racial boundaries in a way to exclude and protect or rather protect the boundaries of whiteness in a way which is, you know, I mean, is there a big difference between this and legal uh, rules that enforce no mixing between, you know, people of different ethnic backgrounds? I mean, this is the sort of manifestation of that without without there having to be rules in place. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I mention it because I feel that there's a mythology of whiteness to this day that we are, you know, that, that white people are overall, we, we are not racist, that we're not involved in, in the sorts of behaviors that you're describing. And, and yet I'm sure this is not a, a particularly unusual um, experiment. Do, do you think your family on that side would have recognized themselves as racist? Absolutely not. Wow. Um, and the thing is, is that people, a lot of people don't think
1: that racism is racism until it's actively discriminatory. So they think, oh, well, I have, a, I have an Asian sister. I have a black friend at work. Um, and so they think that their, their prejudices are not actually racism because they're not acting on them, or at least they're not acting on them in violent or overtly oppressive ways. They don't understand that even the jokes and the comments and the stereotypes and the assumptions, they don't realize that those are all also actively harmful and also acts of racism. And, you know, I, like my my family, they wouldn't like... it it wouldn't be to the point where it's like, okay, you can't come over to my house because you're Asian or I'm not going to give you a present at Christmas, right? I I was like, I I was still, growing up, I was still kind of part of the family, but I felt almost like a lesser part. And I don't even know if it was conscious on their part. Um, I I think they truly thought comments like these were just jokes. Um, And they didn't see it that they had the effect of
0: marginalizing me and making me feel alienated from my own family but it's interesting you mentioned the jokes because i'm i'm particularly sensitive to the idea that one of the ways in which whiteness maintains its veneer of civility is through using humor as a way to maintain that status quo so there's a lot of harm that can be done through humor um, because we can get away with saying things. You know in comedy which we can't get away with saying in real life Mm um i'm i'm curious to know you know your father had chosen had fallen in love presumably with with a filipino lady um he has filipino children or at least half filipino children um did he ever take a stand against the racism that you were experiencing within the family um,
1: I don't think, I, I don't know if he noticed it. Um, I didn't feel comfortable expressing it. I know that if he did, um, hear anything, he, he would stand up. He defended me to my siblings based on other things. Um, sometimes they would, you know, say or do something, um, that wasn't necessarily connected to race and he, he would stand up for me. I don't know if he realized how much of how they viewed me was because of their racial prejudices. He was a very strong ally. Um, He did raise me to be very rooted in my Filipino identity. I never grew up feeling half Filipino. I always grew up, you know, feeling very Filipino, very rooted in my culture, with a dad who just so happened to be white. And for a long time, you know, I kind of felt weird bringing up some of these incidents with him that I remember was maybe like 10 ish, 11 ish. Um, I was in grade school and someone kicked me and called me a chink. And right away he put me in karate classes and he said, someone says something like that to you again. Someone does something like that to you again. Don't be afraid to hit them. And he would, Mm. you know, he would not tolerate it. He told me flat out You know, my mother was uh, the kind of say, okay, well, if it's bad, just report it. Um, You know, tell somebody. And my dad flat out said, no, defend yourself if you have to. And if he also taught me if I got in trouble for defending myself, he would also stand up for me because there was a kid in my karate class who would, you know, say and do things and um, you know, just the usual racialized sexual sexualization and um, all of that. And, you know, one day I ended up punching him <laughs> in the class. And I remember his mother came up to my father after the class and complained about me. And my dad just looked her straight in the eye and said, he had it coming. He should have left my daughter alone.
0: And she, he's lucky that she didn't do worse. Mm. So but, and how did you feel about him sort of in that situation? I guess, placing the onus on you to defend yourself, um, I mean, obviously, which is necessary too. um, But I'm just thinking of this in the sort of wider context of whiteness, where I have heard people say, you know, um, it's always the people who are minoritized who are required to protect ourselves from the violence of whiteness and never whiteness itself that's confronted. Um, do, Do you... Does that resonate or do you feel that actually, you know, maybe you need a bit of both?
1: Um, No, I I, I agree that I'm very tired of it being put on us. Someone after the shootings asked me, what can we do to make people care about violence against Asians? And I said, why are you asking me this? Why is this on me? Why is this on my community? You know, why can't people just stop being racist? Because this is not our problem. This is your problem with us. And we're facing these issues because of racism, because of white supremacy, and you know we need to stop asking communities of color for solutions to racism, mm. because we're not causing the problem. How are we supposed to create the solution? Mm. Um, and so I, I don't think my father was looking at it in that context. He was, you know, obviously very angry about the things that he had heard, the things that were said and done to me. But I think he also realized that there's only so much you can do. And he wanted to make sure that I at least would be able to defend myself physically if it yeah. ever came up. Yeah. Um, you know, because in that moment when someone like is kicking you and calling you names, what are you going to do? Try to outrun them and go tell a teacher? Um, mm. I think he wanted, you know, to have that peace of mind. You know, it wasn't even just empowering me to be able to defend myself. It was also making sure that I knew it was okay. And I, I think that's what I found most validating. It wasn't even just that, okay, if you have to defend yourself, you can defend yourself. It was, if you defend yourself against racism, just remember that you're the one who's in the right. It's okay to, you know... If you mm. are, if you have to, because I, I was raised, um, you know, a very nonviolent household. You know, It was a very Catholic family, turn the other cheek, all of that sort of thing. And my dad always told me to stand up to the bullies, whether it was due to racism or anything else. He said, a lot of them are cowards who will back down. And so he, mm. I think just, you know, he was born in 1933. So he lived through the Depression, he lived through World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, and I guess when, you know, that person kicked me and called me names, he realized how bad it could be for an Asian woman, and I think he didn't completely know how to prepare me for the world. Mm. Yeah. He knew that I'd at least be emotionally hurt, but he wanted to make sure that I was could at least physically protect myself. He did what he could.
0: Um,
1: and you know, he grew up in a time before we had conversations like this, Mm. you know, so I, I don't think he knew how to like protect me emotionally, um, from that sort of thing, other than to tell me that obviously, you know, racism is wrong and racism is bad. But growing up, I didn't have the language or the knowledge to identify, microaggressions to I I didn't have the language to explain why the jokes that some of my relatives would make made me uncomfortable um and, and, and sometimes and you, so you know you would yeah sometimes I, w- I would say something I defend myself and someone would say oh well, it's just a joke don't be so
0: sensitive um so there's also this very real gaslighting that takes place yeah, yeah. this is very uh, very important I think to to raise particularly I think in a family context where where often people don't really verbalize exactly what they mean they sort of say it in roundabout ways um I'm just wondering for people uh you know who might be listening white parents who are raising children um of a mixed heritage now that you're an adult yourself um is there any advice that you would give in, in, you know, for, to those parents to protect, to help them protect their children or to help them confront the issues that you faced, for example, in, in, a, in a better way? Um, I
1: think what I wish I had known was that anything that makes me feel uncomfortable is not okay and I don't have to put up with it. Um, I would mm. often put up with it. And I, I see this a lot with other um, racial minorities where we almost... Sometimes we make the jokes ourselves to beat them to the punch as sort of a defense mechanism. Like I'll imagine having a dog and I'll get a look and I'll say something like, no, I'm not going to eat him. Or at least that, you know, that's what I used to do. I would just try to kind of head off the joke and um, claim it so that they couldn't make it about me to kind of, you know, take the power away from them in that instead of Mm -hmm. saying, Instead of, you know, waiting for them to say something and saying, you know, that's a harmful stereotype and it makes me uncomfortable. I was not raised to, you know, defend myself from these so-called jokes. And I think that um, over time just became very demoralizing because you get used to to the onslaught and it becomes so normalized. And I also think that it's important to raise kids to be rooted in their identities. Um, And that's one thing that I really appreciate my father doing for me is that he, um, you know, raised me to be a confident Filipino American woman. And um, even after my parents got divorced, he was always at the family parties and eating the Filipino food and singing karaoke with us. And that was very affirming to me. He wasn't just you know, on the sidelines, letting me like do my Filipino thing on the side. Um, He was also participating in the culture and respecting the culture. Mm. And I think that was also very helpful. I know some people who have a white parent, whether they're adoptees or they're mixed, they tell me that their parents like don't really look favorably on their non-white backgrounds. They don't want to have anything to do with the food or the culture or the language. That's very difficult for them. So I think that's, you know, very important. Like,
0: keep your kids
1: rooted in their culture. Like, you know, Mm. raise them to not just respect that part of them, but to, you know, let them immerse themselves in it if that's what they choose.
0: Yeah.
1: Let them celebrate it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and how has your, the, the kind of proximity to whiteness within your identity been um, received within the Filipino community? <laughs>
1: There's a lot of invalidation. Um, mm. A lot of people telling me that, you know, I'm somehow less Filipino, which, you know, is, is silly because the, the Philippines is a very multicultural place and always has been, Um and there, there are people who try to diminish your identity and say, well, you're half white, which I don't think of myself as half white because the very definition of whiteness has always been an exclusionary one. The idea of whiteness has been to you know, other people who have any non-white ancestry. So I think of myself as a multiracial Filipino um, who has European ancestry but I can't think of myself as part white because, you know, what is whiteness? I've never been seen as white. I've never been perceived as white. Even when people don't recognize me as Asian, um, they recognize me as something else. As they'll not ask me white. white. Yeah they'll, yeah, they'll say, what are you? Where are you from? Um, mm. Because they, you know, they, they know that I'm not white. They might think mm. that I'm Latina um, or they might think that I'm indigenous, but they never think that I'm white. Um, mm. So just this idea of people saying, oh, well, what do you know, you're half white? And I'm thinking, how can I be half white if whiteness is an identity that was created
0: to exclude people like me? Mm. Um, And well, on that note, I would be very keen to hear um, a poem from your collection from These Islands, I Rise, because I know that you've written uh, one in particular about racism, about your experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be happy to share that with us here now? Um, Sure. Um, One of the poems that's in my collection
1: is called Yellow Fever, and I wrote it not necessarily about one incident in particular, but of many incidents I've had over the years, you know, where men have looked at me and said things like, you're so beautiful, you're Asian. I've always loved Asian women. Asian women are my favorite. Things like that. Um, So this is called Mm. Yellow Fever. (laughs) His eyes fall on my hips no doubt wondering how he could fit between my legs, let alone how a baby could slip out from between them. Not that he's worried about my comfort, no. He fancies himself an intrepid explorer, a sexual anthropologist studying a curious specimen, convincing himself that it's merely curiosity pressing against the zipper of his pants. It's a walk on the wild side because you never really know, do you, what you're getting with one of these island girls, with one of those jungle girls, with one of those girls who's always a girl, never a woman, never anything more than a trophy to line
0: the walls of his ego. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I guess it touches, it brings us almost full back back circle to to Atlanta, doesn't it? And to so many Mm -hmm. of the stereotypes surrounding the women who were victims of that incident. I mean, I even remember um, some of the headlines uh, emphasizing, you know, not people's names, you know, not who they were, but, you know, describing just sex workers um, or, or the innuendos of, of massage parlours. And um, to, to what extent do you feel that um, these, you know, that whiteness has constructed a very narrow box for Asian women in America in particular?
1: I mean, I feel like we're so very often seen in the context of whiteness instead of as, you know, as as individuals. You know, when this shooting happened, um, so much of the coverage was on the shooter and the shooter's motivations and why he did this, and so little of it was on the women and their lives and what happened and i think Mm -hmm. one thing that i found very troubling was that um a lot of korean reporters who were Mm -hmm. in the atlanta area and familiar with the city and even spoke korean were um trying to cover the story and they were told that they couldn't because they might be too biased Ah, uh, that, that old chestnut. Um. <laughs> and of course, you know, white reporters were allowed to cover it, no problem. Mm. Um, there was no concern that they might be biased in a different direction. Um, and, you know, yes, being unbiased is important in, in, in journalism. But at the same time, um, who's not going to be a little bit biased in favour of the
0: victims? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, why wouldn't you,
1: you know, have that sympathy for the victims? And, uh, you know, a good journalist, of course, is going to write this in an unbiased way, because that's what you're trained to do. Even if you have biases, you are trained to put those aside and to report objectively. And the fact that they were silenced is very telling. And I think one thing that really struck me is that, um, there was a Korean language paper that actually re- um, interviewed some of the people who were there, and one of the um, one of the eyewitnesses actually reported saying that when the shooter came in, he said, "I'm going to kill all the Asians," and we didn't really see that reported very much um, in the media mm. because mm. everything, you know, we we saw so much sympathy. For, for the for the killer um while we have these asian voices that are being just silenced and obscured
0: even in the midst of such a horrific crime right in in which they presumably would also have a stronger connection to the communities affected and then potentially actually mm-hmm. a better access to the stories and the voices mm-hmm. at the heart of it and and in, in fact, understanding the codes of different communities, you know, which is a real skill, um, and, and it just—it's interesting you you mentioned that because the the idea of whiteness as neutral, I think, is one of the important uh, points to always, you know, bring back uh, to the fore. This idea that somehow uh, whiteness comes at things without bias, without without any preconceptions, but it's only because those preconceptions are so dominant that they go unexamined um which which is really what this this podcast is all about really trying to examine um the all of all of what makes up whiteness that we rarely discuss and unpick um because it is the water that we swim in as it were um Christine, we've come to um, the quick fire round of uh, the this particular episode um so what it is I'm going to ask you a succession of um, qu- short questions and I' um, just expecting a, a shortish answer if you can um, these are obviously complex questions um, <laughs> what's your what's your definition of whiteness um to me whiteness
1: is it's a social construct that was, created to give a certain group power over
0: other groups. What is the root of racism? Distrust. Distrust of
1: anything different. I think in the current context, it's mostly rooted in white supremacy. But of course, historically, we know that um, racism has always been part of society, even before, you know, we have this definition of whiteness. But in the current context, at least in the West,
0: I think it's very much rooted in white supremacy. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world, in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? I don't know. Some people are telling me we're living in it right now, but
1: obviously we're not. So... Mm. I mean, to me, it seems more like a thought experiment than anything else because, you know, like I said, racism has been here for a long time and I think we can certainly work to dismantle it. It might crop up in different forms, Um, but I don't know. Mm. It's so hard to imagine anything else when that's been so much of my experience for my entire life.
0: Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism, in your view?
1: I think it can be. But I also think that too often people conflate whiteness with white people. um, And sometimes that makes white people um, feel like they're being targeted when they shouldn't be. Because, you know, the, the, what we're critiquing is whiteness, the concept of whiteness, the privilege that comes with whiteness. And we're not saying that every single white individual is, is a problem. Um, and so I think it's important for, you know, white people discussing whiteness to not necessarily take it personally, but to look at their privilege, you know, to look at that white privilege and say, okay, now that I understand what whiteness is, now that I understand how I can benefit from it, how can I also use it to dismantle it and to dismantle white supremacy and racism and stand as an ally with communities of color?
0: Amazing, thank you so much, Christine. Uh, Really appreciate all of your insights. For people who are listening who would like to, tune into some of your music who'd like to read some of your articles maybe uh your poetry is there somewhere you'd like to direct people uh yeah i have a website at cmlewagdixon.com. fantastic thank you well christine Dixon, thank you again so much for your time thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of we need to talk about whiteness please subscribe on itunes spotify or soundcloud And join us next time for more conversations about whiteness.